Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh27. We have four hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet. And I'm the Randy behind the meme site, randysrandom.com. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of macmost.com, I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials almost every day. And I also make mobile games. You can find those at clevermedia.com. I'm Kevin Savitz, and it, I thought we had agreed that we were going to rename it to uh, the, the TEB, and the B would stand for burger. What, we're not implementing <laughs> that this week? Darn it. Tech Enthusiast Burger? <laughs> <laughs> if IHOP can do it, we can do oh. it. You'll understand that in a minute. Oh, Okay. Uh, I'm Kevin Savitz. I am the creator of FaxZero.com, a website that lets you send faxes, and FreePrintable.net, which offers uh, thousands and thousands of printable documents and templates. I'm Greg Bulmash. I'm the accidental creator of a uh, wonderful internet urban legend about my job application at McDonald's. I also run Seattle Coder Dojo, which is a volunteer group that teaches coding to kids, and in the Recent times, I've been learning how to document services at AWS. Well, there you go. And you also had a burger website, which is what uh, I think Kevin was alluding to. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a website called Burger Finder for a while. I sold the domain. Oh, well. Hmm. <clears throat> Too bad, Kevin. Darn it. <laughs> so let's uh, recap what we're doing lately. Um, me, I've been watching... The smoke plumes. I'm in southwest Colorado, and there's a really big and still growing fire. It's like 22,000 acres now, just north of Durango. And I live about 60 miles north of Durango, and it's coming this way. But, um, you know, there's a big mountain range that's 14,000 feet tall that um, I I don't think we're going to get fire here, but we're sure getting a lot of smoke, and it's, uh, it's really gagging. Yeah, I could see, I could actually, from where I sit in Denver, the other side of the state, I can see the results of some of that smoke because I'm watching the sunset and yeah. the it's all red and there, there is that faint smell of ash in the air coming. Of course, we've smelled, you know, from the Pacific Northwest and from California, right. we can smell um, there's fires burning here in Denver. And uh, so the San Juan National Forest is, they're going to close or they already have. I think they already have, yeah. Which is the first time ever because it is so dry and it is, uh, you know, the fire hazard is so high right now. Either this one's spreading or new ones coming up that they just said, look, everybody out of the pool. <laughs> um, we, we can't risk having the entire forest burned down. So we're just going to cancel the season, basically. Yeah, there's a local Facebook group and somebody said, oh, I'm going to be camping up in the mountains. Can I have a campfire? It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> we all Idiot. have a campfire right now. <laughs> yeah. Communal giant. Yeah. Pretty scary stuff. So Gavin, what do you got going on? Uh, just launched, actually I haven't even announced them yet. So you, you are the first people to, to cool. know, just launched a couple of new websites, uh, adding to my, my, uh, your stable. Page. A stable of uh, 100 plus websites. Um, one is called is uh, at mathematicalconstants.com. It's a reference site about uh, uh, physical and and mathematical constant symbols. So you have a page for e and a page for pi. Yep, exactly. And and uh, a bunch of uh, you know uh, Fedora's constant and Catalan's constant and what is an astronomical unit and the proton atomic mass and things like that. Um, yep, page for all these things that hopefully That's won't cool. change. Yeah. <laughs> they hopefully won't change. <laughs> well, they, you know, I, I like to do, I like to do, uh, yeah, talk uh, about a static website. I like to do sites that are evergreen. Well, and you should have, do you have on the page for pi, the complete listing of all digits of pi? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's the most accurate uh, pi site there is. <laughs> yeah. How many digits do you have? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Um, four it's it's probably like, it's probably like 10 actually i mean i don't i think if you really wanted to uh, full fully accurate uh, pi for the, the perfect circle oh, at least a hundred come I, on i haven't i haven't looked actually i really don't know <laughs> i know people have memorized pi to a hundred 
Well, if you're going yeah. to memorize 100 random numbers, might as well be nerds. Pi. See, I, I don't memorize pi. I just, if I need to spout off 100 digits, I just calculate it in my head. Sure, oh. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And after, after like the first 10, you could just start saying anything. What are people that aren't going to argue with you? Because nobody else knows it. You know, 3.1415922283. <laughs> Nine one. Well, I think six they, five three five actually, but that's close enough. And that crashes a Mars lander. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the amazing thing about pi is that you know, with each digit, it becomes so much finer that I, I remember reading somewhere it's a, it's only like ten digits or so that you need, maybe ten or fifteen digits, to actually like plot a course for a, uh, a spacecraft from here to you know Pluto within one inch. Or something because it just you know as you, as you go down uh, you know the decimal places each, each one becomes you know ten times less important than the one before right. and so mm-hmm. you know do, do you think that a spacecraft would have you know onboard calculations with like four hundred digits of pi but actually it's just not necessary. You were telling me something once, Gary, when we were just hanging out. That I mean, since. You kind of, I don't know, you just said that since pi is infinite, yeah, there are all combinations of every yeah. number in there. So, so basically, I mean, the, the, the words tech enthusiast hour are somewhere in pi encoded in ASCII, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, we were having fun once talking about yeah. everything that would be encoded in pi since it's infinite. Right. Um, you know, so the complete works of Shakespeare in ASCII code are somewhere in pi, somewhere. <laughs> you know, and it's and they're also there with one word misspelled by one letter, and you know, it's just you can just think of anything you can think of. It's there. This so. reminds me of the saying that you know, if you got an infinite number of monkeys with an infinite number yeah. of typewriters, they they type out all of Shakespeare in right. you know perfectly, and and that now that we have the internet, we know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and well, uh, we don't have <laughs> infinite monkeys. Yeah. A lot of them, but not infinite. That's true. Not yet. And my other new site, um, remember we're talking about my, my new sites? Um, yeah. My other okay, new, we can talk about you some more. My new sites is uh, papersizereference.com, which is something we threw together, which has information about all the different sizes of, of... Like what the heck A4 is? Exactly. Yes. And But there's so many. I mean, once you really start digging into it, there's something, I you know, legal and letter and A4 and... And but then there's all these these ANSI and ISO size papers and uh, different ones from the from the uh, United Kingdom. You know, you want to know what Royal Octavo size is? Well, you know, it's 152 millimeters by 241. If you happen to need to know these things, and uh, anyway, so that's my other new site that we just cool was launched. I found out last night that there's such a thing called government legal because I was setting up the page in my graphics program. And I was looking for legal, and the first thing that came up was government legal. It's like, what's that? Sure. Well, it's 216 millimeters by 300 millimeters, or eight and a half inches by 13 inches. Instead of 14, which is their usual legal. Right. Yeah. Of course, the government has to do things differently. <laughs> wow. Short changes. Yeah. They probably ordered, at some point, they probably ordered like a thousand file cabinets, and they ordered them <laughs> like one inch too short, and they were like, what do we do? Well, let's create a new paper size that will just fit these file cabinets so we can justify the cost. And make yeah. Pendaflex make us folders for them. Yeah, exactly. That's probably yeah. what happened. And pay $6,000 for an inkjet that'll fit the paper. Yep. Yeah. And the ink cartridge is, is ten grand <laughs> for it. Yeah. So what about you, Gary? What have you been up to? Ah, so let's see. So me, so first, uh, get this out of the way. I did release the game I talked about last time. It's called Scenic Solitaire. And you can go to clevermedia.com. It's the top game. It's a solitaire game where you build, as you win games, you are building up these scenes of, you know, landscapes and interesting things. So you have like kind of a goal rather than just playing solitaire and saying, I won. You play solitaire and, oh, now I can see the the tree or the farmhouse or whatever in the the thing. So check that out. It's free to download. the uh, and then I went on my first camping trip, and uh, you know all this different first ever. Come on, no, no, of the year, of the year. Uh, the um, I I do what's called in the United States called backcountry camping, 
different parts of the world called all sorts of weird things, trekking or whatever, walking some countries. Uh, and yeah, so basically going I, outside, I go, I go walk about, you can't go with a car, but with all my stuff on my back and, uh, and yeah. So, um, so make it high tech. Did you use apps? Yeah. Yeah. So I use my iPhone as my GPS and, uh, which is great. Um, you know, having old enough to have height, Without a GPS, then hiked with an actual GPS device, which sucked because it was just like dots on a screen and longitude and latitude numbers, and then you pulled out a paper map and all that. And now to have like these apps that actually have like high-resolution versions of topographical maps on them and, and satellite imagery, and be able to, um, you know, plot your GPS route, even if you, I'm not connected, I'm completely off the grid while doing this. Uh, and be able to tell exactly where you are and keep track of your speed and your altitude and how, you know, your distance travel, distance left, all sorts of cool stuff. I use a, an app called Topo Maps Plus. The plus is the actual plus sign. And uh, it's a great app that um, I've been using for years. And it's nice when you're done, you get, you know, you can look at your whole route and uh, look at altitude maps and your times and you can mark little spots and it'll even index it to your photos. So it'll, you know, you can oh, that's neat. trail where your photos that you took on your phone were. It's a cool, uh, it's a cool app. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then I, I'm able to download different maps so I can do some modern topo maps and do uh, satellite views, which is useful for like finding your camping spot. You know, sometimes it's, it's kind of tough to find those things out in the backcountry in the places people rarely go, but I discovered a new app too. So, you know, in the, I was in the Rocky mountains and, at one point, get to a beautiful vista at the top of a, you know, uh, not really a peak because it was, I was, wasn't quite that high for, to call it a peak, but um, up there and I could see the, the entire, you know, Rocky Mountain range, the main range with lots of 14ers. And the great thing is you look at them and you see all these mountains in the distance. And you're like, I wonder what those are, <laughs> especially mm. when you look at them from Denver all the time and you know how to, you know what they are from Denver, but now you're looking at the other side of them and, uh, like which one is which and there's an app for that um it's called peak finder and it not only do you look through the camera at the mountains and it knows your gps location and knows your orientation what you're pointing at but it'll overlay a 3d model view of the mountains on top so you can precisely match each peak to like the 3d model and then drops little tags and you could see what each mountain is called that's cool. And it's it's super cool, and other has other landmarks as well, you know, lakes or whatever. Um, super cool because I've seen stuff like that before, where it shows you like here's the three highest peaks, but to see every little peak at every little ridge and have them all labeled and be like, oh wow, I could see that from here, you know, it's really a cool uh, cool looking app. And um, and I actually got it because when I got to the top there, there were other people there. It's kind of like a point where everybody gets to and waits and has lunch and enjoys the view. And there was the only point during the entire journey I was on today where I had service because you could see for, well, for at least 50 miles. Maybe You could probably miles. see you know, six or seven cell towers. Yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, I probably couldn't actually see them with my eyes. They were too small, right. but they were there. And um, so I'm at the top and I actually had like a bar and, you know, 4G signal. So this guy had this app and he was doing it. I was like, that's really cool. So I downloaded it and purchased it for five bucks while on top of this, uh, top of this peak, <laughs> I was viewing it. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I was able to, to view, you know, all the mountains myself. And I'm like, I wonder how many sales of this particular app are done at places like that. You know, cause surely the next time I'm in such a situation and I'm up there, I'm probably going to be looking through this app and somebody else will come up and say, what's that? That's cool. You know, <laughs> and then probably be another sale. Well, give me the URLs for the apps. I'll put it on the show page. I'll do that. People only buy that app when they're high. <laughs> <laughs> so, Greg, are you uh, doing anything interesting this week? Uh, <clears throat> Besides well, AWS? <laughs> yeah, that's about, that's about it. No, um, uh, this weekend I did a really fun thing called the Lard Butt, which is a uh, one-kilometer walk. What did you call me? <laughs> <laughs> It's a one-kilometer walk uh, with donut stops every 250 meters. Well, so that's reasonable. Got to keep your, you know, sugar yeah. up. And so, you know, you're walking a whole 0. 0.625 miles. Um, 
and you know, do it with friends. It was a lot of fun. Brought the kids. Uh, yeah, I mean, now that Coder Dojo is off for the summer, I mean, like Sunday afternoons, instead of going and teaching kids to uh, make video games, I took a nap. Oh, well, don't strain yourself. <laughs> hey, you know, you got to conserve your energy, especially after you walked and ate donuts the day before. <laughs> right. So I actually invited you because you'd been posting a bunch of stuff on your Facebook about Microsoft buying GitHub. And I think that is kind of interesting. I, I saw that um, in the news and I want to know what, you know, a programmer type like yourself, and I know there's other programmers on the show here, think of that. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it, it's, created a lot of fervor in a number of dev communities I'm part of. And there are people who um, are all for it. There are people who are like, that's it. I migrated all my repositories to GitLab or Bitbucket or whatever. Um, so there, there are some people who have just like, okay, that's it. I'm done with GitHub. And other people who are like, hey, it's all right. Or, hey, let's wait and see. But for me, really, it's been like, you know, I was at Microsoft uh, from, you know, as a full-time employee from 2012 through 2015, and I contracted there from 2007 through 2012. And I was able to witness a growing dedication at Microsoft to open source and to um, open standards. Uh, you so know, it's real, not just a um, marketing thing? It's, you know, some people might think it's marketing, but honestly, the people that I worked with were actually very passionate. Uh, you know, I worked in uh, Internet Explorer documentation and working with Internet Explorer uh, project managers who eventually became edge project managers, um, program managers. And, uh, the, you know, they all were very big on open standards. I mean, they wanted to see what else they could bring to the browsing experience, but you know, Microsoft got involved in the uh, the web platform initiative, which was trying to bring together uh, web standards documentation from Google and Mozilla and Microsoft, and working with the W3C. Uh, it was it was a big thing for them, and you know they've they've open sourced the .NET. and I think that they you know under Satya and under uh, just as as they've evolved, they've realized that they have to be a lot more open source friendly because that's where things are going. And I think this is a way for them to open up a real strong line of communication with the open source community and really support it. Uh, it if they try to monetize it too hard, they'll alienate people. But if if they really do sort of use this as a way to brand themselves and to have lines of dialogue and show their dedication to the open source community. I think that this could benefit Microsoft a lot. Well, and the thing that really shocked me about it was they paid $7.5 billion for it. So is just the notoriety of supporting it going to be worth seven and a half billion to them? No, no, no. I, you know, they're going to, they're going to have, some advertising. Remember that GitHub also does have, um, they, they do have commercial offerings. Uh, you know, the only thing that's free is if your projects, your, your repositories are open source and free to the public. If you want to have private repositories, it's eight bucks a month. Um, and so I think that Microsoft is really sort of going to come in and think about ways uh, that they can do more enterprise get uh, to work with bigger corporations. Of course, most of those will be corporations that use Microsoft products. Uh, um, there will be certain customers of GitHub who will gradually migrate away from it just because uh, they can't bet on Microsoft being neutral. But uh, I think that a lot of uh, a lot of people will take that bet, and um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Well, for listeners who don't know what GitHub or even Git is, why don't you give us a, you know 
a brief description of Git and who made it and all that stuff. Okay, so so this is funny. Git is an open source version control system. Okay, and it exists independently of GitHub. It existed before GitHub. And for version control, if if people want to understand what that is, it you know, you can basically save copies of your stuff as you work on it and Git will, you know, keep track of all the changes from one save to the next so that you can deal with that. You can also have multiple people working on things and have better tools for integrating all the different things that they're contributing. Um, And so Git has existed independently of GitHub and there are other people offering Git services like Atlassian's Bitbucket, like GitLab. Uh, But GitHub basically became the most famous because they offered Git services for free to open source and built up this huge community of open source developers who, uh, you know, were essentially leaving uh, SourceForge in drones, in droves. Uh, SourceForge was a previous place for hosting open source projects that got overly commercial and drove a lot of developers away. Um, to, to the extent that in some of the compiled apps, they were inserting adware and a lot of people were very unhappy about it. Um, so as people moved away from SourceForge, they found Git, GitHub as a great place to host their open source projects. And they were able to, and GitHub added all sorts of additional collaboration tools and ways for, um, ways for teams to work together on, these projects. So GitHub is, is basically a layer on top of Git that offers all these services to help use Git and make it more useful for teams to collaborate. And I'll say that Git was created by Linus Torvalds, who is the guy behind the Linux kernel. Isn't that right? Uh, I believe so. You know, I, I'm not a, like a huge uh, Git history <laughs> nerd. So um, I've, I've, I think I've read that somewhere. I, I just use it. Uh, uh, it's the third version control system that I've had to learn over the years. So it's, and I, uh, I just looked him up on Wikipedia to make sure I was right. He's the creator and, the, and for a long time principal developer of the Linux kernel. So there you go. Oh, I, I know what Lin- Linus has done. Um, but oh, okay. Uh, it's it's more did i i didn't know that he necessarily created git but basically you know when i got into this uh people were using cvs concur uh i think it stands for concurrent versioning system and then that sort of was succeeded by subversion svn and yep. then svn has been succeeded by git as uh in general for developers as a way to uh collaborate on code all right, and, and this may be getting too basic, but what's open source? <laughs> How long do you have? Sure. Because <laughs> so, probably half our listeners already know that anyway. So in short, open source is, you know, code that you can, that you can read. But generally, um, there's also an open source license associated with it that dictates ways that you can use that code for free. So what a lot of people think of it as open source is actually called FLOSS or free Libra open source software. And that's software that has an open source license, such as the GNU public license, the Berkeley systems distribution license, the MIT license, Apache 2.0, um, various licenses that say, hey, you can use this for free so long as you follow these rules. Um, basically, I think most people know it in general because of OpenOffice, which is a Microsoft Office clone that was created by a bunch of people. And if you, know, you wanted to improve their version of Word, for instance, you, and you're a programmer, you can go into the open source project and say, hey, I want to fix this part, you know, change uh, control or whatever, uh, track changes. And they'd say, sure, go for it. And then they would contribute that code to the library. And then the next version of 
open word would have all that uh, improvement in it. And and to to bring that back to to Git, if if a project like that was hosted in Git, you could make your changes, you could push them up to Git, and then whoever manages that project can go, wow, these are some really nice changes, and then easily fold them into the the official project. And then, or if you, which is really cool, yeah. Or if you screw things up badly, you could just nuke your thing and download it again. You know, back yeah. to back to square one. Or they, or they can basically, they can, you know, uh, make comments on your thing. You can upload a revised version, and then they can merge it. Um, but what what a lot of people don't understand, Linux is open source, uh, right? Uh, the Apache web server, which still powers quite a lot of the web is like 80% or something like that. And, you know, a lot of the graphics that you see on the web, you know, a a lot of them are created with Adobe tools, but there are a lot that are created with uh, the GNU image manipulation program, GIMP. Uh, There are a lot that are created with um, an Adobe Illustrator competitor called Inkscape. And these are all not only free to use, but you you can dive into the code if you want to sort of understand how these things work. And if you want to contribute something to them, yeah, you can, you can do that. Um, to, not all of them run on Git. Uh, you know, I'm, the Linux kernel isn't on, on GitHub. Um, but there are, you know, you can, you can set up your own Git server. It's all how you want to do it. Um, like I said, it's, it's a free open source program, and GitHub is just a layer on top. And I overestimated how much uh, Apache does. I just looked it up. As of July 2016, it was estimated to serve 46% of all active websites. It was originally released in 1995, so it's pretty old and and obviously still maintained. And the Apache Foundation supports a bunch of other open source projects. You would be surprised at the collection of open source projects supported by the Apache Foundation. Cool. So Gary, I, I think you probably have something to say about GitHub and all this too. So well, you're a programmer. I mean, I, mean, I don't really use, uh, it's not like a solo software shop. Um, you know, I, don't really, I don't really use, you know, Git for anything. <laughs> but I uh, certainly open source is something, you know, the, the one thing we left out about the conversation about open source is it's not just whole pieces of software like GIMP, the image editor, you know, but it's also portions of software. Like so, libraries. Yeah, libraries. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when I would uh, say if I want to put a little 3D um, action into some of my games, there's actually uh, an open source library that I use. Um, and, you know, it allows me to, you know, take that library and put it into my software and then I could you know, use more easily do 3D stuff. I don't have to start from scratch. And I'm not the only one that does that. Matter of fact, of course, Apple... Um, uses lots of open source libraries throughout uh, Mac OS and particularly in Safari, the web browser. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know the exact, I haven't kept track of the exact details, but you know, Safari uses WebKit to render, um, uh, you know, web pages. It's basically the engine in Safari and Chrome also uses WebKit and either part or all of WebKit is open source. And uh- Chrome forked WebKit uh, yeah. as a big middle finger, finger to Apple uh, a few years back. So. Oh, so they're diverging from each other. But And yeah. I don't know if, if Google puts back – I know Apple for a while, there'd be a news story every once in a while where they'd say, like, Apple just checked in, you know, all this stuff back into WebKit. Um, so there's certainly stuff – Apple takes the software. Like, Apple, Apple's a typical big software developer. They'll take the open source software, then they'll – incorporate it into the product and some of the stuff that they, some of the changes they make will be proprietary to them. And some of them they'll decide this should go back into the open source. Now we've improved the security of this or, you know, maybe the look of how fonts render or whatever they want. And they say, we're going to put that all back into open source and get back to the community. But these little things for the, you know, where we've customized it to look Mac like we're going to keep those in our, the private, area where it doesn't go back into the open source project. So, so yeah, I mean, I do that. I do that with a lot of my, my apps have bits and pieces of, 
you know, whether it's a single little function that I get from an open source project for doing something like an algorithm for something or something big like a 3D library or something like that. Um, developers use bits of open source and open source is great. It, it, people that don't understand open source think that that would be bad for security. And in fact, it's the opposite because you think, well, wait a minute, if anybody could look at the source code for an app I'm using and see every line of code, couldn't they look through it and figure out how to exploit the software to do something bad? And the answer is, yes, they can, but so can everybody else. And it turns out there's a lot more people interested in making the software secure than you know trying to do bad things with it. So for every one person that might say, oh, look, I found an exploit here, there's 10 or 100 other software developers that have already found that exploit and said, we need to fix that before somebody does something bad with it. And open source software is generally considered to be a good you know, idea in terms of security. Which I think is just awesome that, you know, this isn't necessarily about free software. It's about commercial software too. Mm-hmm. And we all benefit from it. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the great things is, is that... Um, if anybody's made, you know, I've made uh, mobile apps using uh, Apache Cordova, which was originally called PhoneGap, and then Adobe bought PhoneGap, and they create, they have their own version with additional features and stuff that they stuff that they can offer. But they keep contributing stuff back to PhoneGap, and it's basically a wrapper for WebKit to make mobile apps using JavaScript and HTML. And it's, it's amazing. I was able to make an app um, that used uh, the AWS Lex APIs uh, to basically have a voice-powered app that listened to my kids' knock-knock jokes for me. <laughs> awesome. So, it just re- so they would say knock-knock and it would respond, who's there? Yeah, knock, knock, who's there? And they would say something and it would repeat it back to them with who added on. Um, and, and then they could say the punchline and whatever the punchline was, it would laugh. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> the other half of knock, knock joke. That's yeah. great. But the cool thing was, is that, um, you know, if you, if you look at like Node.js, which has become one of the hottest programming languages around, uh, one of the hottest uses of JavaScript around, and it has so much, uh, so many open source libraries and frameworks and stuff uh, it's built on top of V8, which is the JavaScript engine from Chrome, which Google open sourced. It's all very incestuous in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Well, what goes around comes around, right? Yeah. It's like the whole worldwide software development community acting as like one kind of big software team. Um, you know, people building on other other people's things. Instead of saying, I'm going to have a software company and we're going to start from scratch, you know, which, uh, you know, might have been fine in 1985, but uh, won't get you very far in 2018. And, you know, in the, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Microsoft was very afraid of this, Um, but they've learned that it can be embraced in a way that uh, still benefits them. Uh, they still have a lot of closed source stuff, but they're they're gradually opening the kimono. So, yeah, and that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, basically, they, they you can now be a C sharp developer without having to touch Microsoft's tools at all. You can do it straight up using open source, you know, mono develop. And even uh, use Xamarin to build mobile apps using MonoDevelop. Um, so they're they're trying to build a large community of open source developers who develop uh, with Microsoft technologies because eventually those developers are going to go pro and want pro tools, and that's when they'll start paying Microsoft. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with GitHub now. Um, I think it'll. I think it'll be good. I mean, it's. I, I think uh, Microsoft might. Uh, you know, they know what's at stake, and I think they'll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 
You know, Microsoft can always shoot itself in the foot. I'm just. <laughs> yes, they can. <laughs> Expertly. It's just been interesting to see the, the variety. Of, I mean, no one knows what's going to happen, of course, but the, the variety of, of, of uh, feedback to, to this news of them, Microsoft acquiring GitHub. I mean, I've seen many people on Twitter and, and whatever just being like, oh, this is horrible. And like Randy said, you know, I'm going to move to GitLab. And then, you know, one of the uh, a developer who uh, I'm buddies with who worked at Atari and then helped worked on at, uh, you know, create the, the USB protocol. He's just like, Microsoft is returning to its roots. It's supporting software engineers. This is good for everybody, you know. And so, you know, um, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle or, or, or not. But Yeah, and you remember they paid $26.5 billion for LinkedIn. So... Mm-hmm. Um, if they can tie LinkedIn and GitHub together in good ways, uh, that's going to benefit the developer community as well. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't kill LinkedIn. It's still as crappy as it ever was. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who is, uh, working on his, his, his startup is a, uh, is a profile site for developers that, you know, meets their needs way better than LinkedIn does. So. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of security of big platforms, uh, I don't know, Kevin, did you want to talk about this uh, breach of the week? Breach of the week. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) The, uh, the steam thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, So the news is that an exploit left millions of Steam users vulnerable for the past decade. Ten years. Ten years. Um, yeah, just, I mean, using old old code and uh, legacy code what you, and has legacy bugs, I guess. A security researcher, according to this Motherboard article, found a serious vulnerability that allowed hackers to take control over any uh, of a Steam user's computer. Um, yeah, that guy's name is Tom Court. And the, the, the quote I liked best from that article is he said the takeaways, takeaway for this bug is that developers need to constantly review old and aging code and make sure it conforms to modern security standards. Sure. Well, yeah, good idea. Yeah. But I mean, that's hard. I mean, the, the, you're yeah, it is hard. Code and you get, it gets more and more code. And, and oh, well, the guy who wrote that, left the company five years ago, and it seems to work fine. So, you know. And it's not very well documented, so we don't really know how it works. Yeah, don't, don't touch it, and uh, it'll probably be fine. And, and, and yet, the, the world changes around the code. The code might be fine. The code might be solid, but then the, 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 the universe shifts around it, and suddenly the code isn't good anymore. And nobody knows until a hacker or a cracker or a security researcher or whoever stumbles upon the, the fact that it's, it's no longer uh, true. I mean, I've had that problem on a much, much smaller scale myself and my little websites. And I, mean, I remember when back when I had, I was building things myself by hand in PHP three and that was fine. And, and I was following the standards and I knew what I was doing. And, and then, you know, eventually we upgraded to, PHP 5 or whatever the, was new at that point and suddenly uh, was, a few things broke and that was obvious and we fixed the things that were broken and some things didn't break but suddenly were not secure anymore and all we did was update the software and it might have even happened automatically uh, and without us knowing all of a sudden there were things on the site that were not what we wanted them to be you know, and, and that's a you know, sites that were a couple hundred lines of code, not right. thousands and thousands. And, thousands well, and I see it all the time with uh, WordPress itself and sometimes WordPress plugins where they'll come up with a, you know, an updated version of that plugin or the WordPress core. And all of a sudden, you know, the next day, oh, quick, put this, put the, uh, we need to update again. Quick, do the, you know, apply this patch. And I think it's because of something similar, that just something broke when they updated something. And it was all this interdependency, and, you know, you change this, and it affects that. Mm -hmm. So I don't even actually know what Steam 
was, or I, I understand it's a gaming platform, but is, sure. So I, Steam, Steam is a is a platform for purchasing and and playing games. Basically, you you have this kind of this this front end, and it has you know we'll, we'll say uh, we'll call it an app store for games, and um, you can say and it's become a very very popular hub for developers of of all sizes from little one person shop indie develop, developers up to to the the hugest companies to sell games so you know go through the app store you you say I want to download this game you click a button you, you pay uh or maybe it's free and it it downloads the game to your computer and then after that's done you can you can access all the the games from this one uh, one menuing system, we'll say, uh, on, on your computer, um, and it's a convenient way for developers to to sell their stuff. They don't the developer doesn't need to take credit card information, doesn't need to process credit cards. For instance, it's probably some of the the advantages to them, and uh, and it's a convenient way for for users to have kind of a one stop shop for all their gaming needs. So it's not libraries and and stuff like we were talking about before. No, it's, no, it's more. more I, I think it's more of a storefront, as I yeah. understand. Okay. Yes, definitely storefront, and kind of also has the multiplayer functionality mm-hmm. in it. So you could be, you know, your games on Steam, and it's multiplayer game. So it it links the players together. Yeah, right. yeah, the, yeah. Um, uh, and and what are they called? The uh, uh, leaderboards and yeah. and. Things like that. It, I think it takes yeah. care of a lot of that, and, and not. I wouldn't really call it a library, but it takes care of some of the, the that f- sort of functionality that everybody needs. It okay. offers a bunch of services that can be incorporated as long as you code to their standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I guess their standards weren't as high as they should have been. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I think. I think. Well, I haven't read the article, but I bet the. Uh, That's not required. It's the, the internet. You can't was in their library, so yeah. yeah, yeah. I gather, I gather that's what it is. Just a matter of updating your library, you know, the libraries you're using from them. So, so, so this is this is my question. I, you know, as I haven't read the article, um, to whoever has 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 this bug, has an exploit for this bug been found in the wild, or was it sort of caught before anybody was really nailed by it? As as I understand it, as far as they know, it was not exploited. Uh, it was found by the security researcher, and then who gave the information to to uh, to Valve? Um, you know, if somebody found it has been secretly using it for the last decade, they weren't caught, I guess. Yeah, and they they did do a uh, update in April and thanked Tom Court in the release notes. So presumably, it's been patched. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we've beaten that one to death. <laughs> so I want to talk to you guys um, uh, about the the net, net neutrality thing. It, it's, yes. offic- it's officially dead as of today. Today, um, yep. It, and we we who believe that net neutrality was a good thing did everything we could. And we lost due to the incompetence and 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 stubborn, uh, just just stupidness in the in the FCC. Frankly, and is there? I want to know from on your guys' opinion. Is there anything we can do at this point now that we have that net neutrality is oh. is not no is is no more as of today? Well, yeah, I I think so. I've been thinking about it, and it, see, the thing is, it's not it's not black and white. There is net neutrality. There isn't net neutrality because we we have seen that having net neutrality wasn't permanent <laughs> because that went away. So now we're in a state of no net neutrality, but that's not permanent either. And actually, if you go back, we were actually in a state of no net neutrality for a while, and you know that changed. So you switch switching back and forth uh, is probably what what we're at here. You know, and the companies that would do the most damage with not having a neutrality, the big ISPs who would love to be able to charge at both ends of the spectrum, you know, charge 
providers, you know, owners of websites and services um, for, you know, fast access to customers. Like um, Netflix, for instance? Yeah, to charge, charge Netflix. Well, and, and some companies like Netflix who have lots of money probably wouldn't mind paying for it because it means their competition can't catch them. But, you know, the smaller companies would not be able to pay that. So the, the thing is that it's not a, an easy thing. They can't move fast. It's not like today net neutrality died, so now suddenly Comcast and Verizon can throw a switch and start collecting money from people. They have to put things in place and, you know, really move cautiously and over the period of probably years to start monetizing and killing the internet. Um, now, and all the while they know that it could change back. It could change back. Exactly. So you to directly answer your question, Kevin is keep the pressure on because the more pressure that these companies feel both from those in the government that say they want net neutrality to come back. And those of us, you know, in the population that say we support net neutrality, the more pressure that, you know, AT&T and Verizon and Comcast feel, the more they're going to say, oh, I don't know if we want to waste our time setting up this whole system to suck the internet dry of money um, when there could be legislation passed, you know, say after the next you know, uh, midterm elections or after the next presidential election that then puts net neutrality back in place. Matter of fact, if it was this easy to take net neutrality away, you can imagine that if the next presidential election goes the opposite direction, that a new FCC would then go ahead and reinstate net neutrality. Um, And that scares them. So the advantage that we have as those in favor of net neutrality is we're the option where the big companies don't do anything. You know, they're not trying to monetize the bandwidth on the internet uh, per speed. Um, That's easy for them to do. They just don't have to do anything. Whereas the opposite side, the no net neutrality is they have to put a system in place and actually start collecting money from people. Um, And that system that they need to put in place is going to cost them a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of money and time. And if it turns out that by the time they get into place, suddenly they're told it's illegal for them to do that. It's a big waste of time and And money and money and bad PR for them because of like, you know, in this world of competition, you know, if you have one provider goes and says, we're going to embrace net neutrality, even though it's not here and be the good guys. And the other one says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to start charging. And then, everything changes. The one company's kind of left holding the bag. <laughs> they were like, Oh, you know, we were about to, you know, destroy the internet. Uh, but we didn't because they changed the rules and the other company can go and say, well, we weren't going to destroy the internet no matter what, you know, even without the rules. So there's a lot, there's, as long as we keep pressure up, if we don't keep pressure up, if it looks like everybody's like, all right, we lost net neutrality and everybody gives it up, then these companies will eventually, uh, you know, start doing this and start doing the kinds of moves that will hurt innovation, that will hurt small companies on the internet, and that will make it hard, you know, equal access to the internet very difficult. I feel like they're going to start putting their toes in the water slowly in ways that people don't notice or even of course. Seem, seems couched as a, as a good thing. You know, like uh, we're... Uh, not, on your phone, we're not going to, you go to, to whatever, direct TV on your AT&T phone, and we're not going to uh, count that against your, your bandwidth already, allocation. Already so, do it. Oh, really? Yeah. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but if you use Netflix, well, that yeah, counts against your, your limited you know, bandwidth that you get every month. So Not, the, on, not on T-Mobile. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. T-Mobile's Netflix, but yeah, so... Hmm. So they, I, they couch it as a benefit. It's a, they think it's a good thing. Well, you know what? This is exactly the kind of thing that net neutrality is not supposed to allow because it is, they, they are you know, uh, uh, letting certain companies get advantages over others. In, and, and so what happens when the new Netflix, whatever, whatever it is, the new, the new next company comes along, they're, they're going to have this huge disadvantage because mm-hmm. their bandwidth is going to be more expensive. Well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's also going to, two things. One, it's going to require anybody who wants to compete with Netflix to innovate in a way that really garners attention. But more importantly, I think you, you really have to think about the fact that 
this is all going to be delayed until they see how it shakes out with the states because California is working on a net neutrality bill. I believe Washington is. Um, essentially, the states are going to, you know, the states still have some power through their public utilities commissions and through, uh, you know, through uh, the various monopoly zones that a lot of these telecoms have for their, for their, you know, landline stuff that they can, they can apply a a good deal of pressure. And so what's going to end up happening is you've got the States fighting against federal federal saying, you don't, you can't regulate this. You can't do this. And the States go, well, we can just basically say, if you're not going to do what we want, we're not going to cooperate. And so I think right now you have the, the big players are waiting to see what the States do before they make any moves. Right. And technically, if not having net neutrality is saying that the government isn't going to regulate this, which then means the states can. It's kind of the opposite of what, you know, you would you would normally think, you know, normally the the federal government would do something and then t- that takes power away from the states. But in this case, the federal government's removing a power that they had. And so the states have a, at least enough power to take it to court. You know, if they, they pass, if California passes an neutrality bill or something, um, it's not going to, it's going to be years in court, I would imagine, even if yeah. California doesn't get their way. And then, and then the, the, the fun thing is, is that if every state has a different net neutrality compliance standard that the uh, ISPs have to document, it can become as nasty as uh, sales tax. Yeah, and, and they might say, hey, we want the feds to step back in here. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. We, we just want the feds to step in to unify this. So, Or yeah. at, least, uh, at least maybe somebody, if there were 50 different net neutrality bills, or even if there were only like 20 different net neutrality bills for 20 states, mm-hmm. there'd probably be somebody that would come up with a catch-all document that would be like, if you do all this, you would adhere to all 20 regulations and you'd be fine anywhere in the United States. And that would become... The, the new net neutrality was, was the common denominators between uh, not even the common denominators. It's the union of all of the. Right. I mean, think about how GDPR has been influencing the privacy policies of American websites yep. um, because it's just so overwhelming that they're just like, you know, we, we just got to get on board with it because people from Europe end up at our websites. But I think it was like the LA times was actually turning European IP addresses away. Yep. Um, Interesting. There's several sites that are doing that. Uh, But I don't know if LA times was doing that as a protest or because they just weren't ready yet. Yeah. It's really unclear. So I would like it if it was a protest. I, you know, I think, I think anybody giving a middle finger finger to Brussels is 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 a friend. I <laughs> <laughs> libertarian you. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, uh, we already knew that we know that the European Union has gone after some big big tech companies that do operate in Europe, but you know, are they ever going to take the step where they go after any medium sized or small internet company that operates in the United States? No. Um, I don't sorry. think that they can go after anybody who's who's solely in the United States, but yeah. as more and more companies become multinational and start sure. moving their money or, you know, just moving their money around, putting employees in various places, you know, Amazon's got a big office in Luxembourg and, you know, Apple's all over the place, Microsoft's all over the place. Um, and they're big companies, but smaller companies, you know, um, they may have, yeah, a, a satellite office in France. And the moment they have that satellite office in France, even if there are only three people in it, they have a, a presence that can be hit hard. Sure. Well, it's not, I have no doubt that they would maybe eventually go after a company like that, but a company that doesn't have that at all, which would be a huge number of us software companies and web development companies that have absolutely no employees in Europe and, um, you know, somehow, you know, I mean, that, that's the problem is like, would, is, is the EU going to go after number one companies that are really outside of its jurisdiction? And number two, what did, what's the threshold for it? Cause I could see them maybe deciding to go after a company that's 
blatantly violating privacy, like in a well, way, as opposed to a company that just didn't decide to put a little, this site has cookies thing at the bottom of their, you know, their web blog or whatever. Well, my prediction is that like um, the American Disability Act, you don't have to wait for the government to hassle you because there's lawyers that file suit mm-hmm. against, you know, even little restaurants and little mom and pop places because they didn't have a wheelchair ramp or something like that. And even if they could litigate out of it and say, you know, this, this is overreaching, it costs them a fortune to hire lawyers and defend themselves. So instead they, you know, pay $10,000 to the lawyer to go away, which to me is just extortion. Mm. So I think we're going to see something like that where lawyers or law firms or even private citizens start going after websites because they didn't have a cookie notice or something like that. Hmm. Scary. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you make one go away and then another one comes. Well, the thing is, is when you make one go away, you fix the problem. If you just make one go away and you leave the problem out there as a blinking, open, festering wound, uh, people, you know, flies are going to keep settling. Right. And, but the open festering wound might just be that you don't have a cookie policy or that you don't know how to put in a plug-in on your site because you're not very techie and you don't know how to put in a cookie notice. But after it costs you 10 grand, you're going to figure it out. No, you're going to go out of business. Yeah. It, after it costs you 10 grand, you're, you don't have a website anymore. You're, you're over it. <laughs> Well, remember, I got I got sued for twenty five million dollars by a clip art troll. So I don't remember that. Huh? Tell the well, story. Yeah. That sounds yeah. Uh, basically, I'd found I you know I had my FunDraw website, which was you know basic uh, a drawing app built in Flash that you could you know bring in clip art and make like little things. You know, sort of like an Adobe Illustrator one point uh, Bezier drawing and clip art. And so I had a bunch of clip art from Open Clip Art Library. I had a bunch of clip art that I had commissioned uh, artists, uh, offshore artists to make for me. And then I had found some uh, open source art on a, a website that, that said it was a uh, public domain. And it seemed, apparently it was like a honeypot site for this troll uh, who had basically his, his clip art collection had escaped on the web around 98 and he had sued a few people and got a couple million dollars. And then his business model became extorting settlements out of going to be my next website. That's brilliant. (laughs) You know, extorting settlements out of, you know, churches and schools and various people who used his clip art without permission because, you know, this just because some random site said it was free doesn't mean it is. And you're still liable technically. And it's way more expensive to defend the suit than to pay him off. Uh, so anyways, since I linked to Zazzle, I ended up as a co-defendant in his uh, big grab against Zazzle. Um, and uh, what ended up happening was is we had this 82-year-old partially retired judge in Atlanta who wouldn't even rule on our motions that the court in Atlanta had no jurisdiction in this case. Um, and just sat on it for like 18 months until we finally settled for quite a lot less, but I can't discuss how much less. But you um, had to pay money. Had to pay money, had to pay lawyers. Um, and you know, it was pretty hard because at that point I was unemployed. You know, when the suit came in, I was unemployed and I really, you know, luckily because, you know, my father's an attorney, he helped me out a lot. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was unemployed, had a new baby, and this site was not making very much money. And this guy's coming at me, you know, with demands like to settle. He wants $500,000 and wants me to turn over all the software and uh, uh, maintain it for five years. Oh, nice. And we're like, no way. No way. And, uh, you know, uh, but there, there's a site somewhere called, uh, I think it's, extortionletterinfo.com and it, it goes over these these various copyright trolls including getty images who 
basically have just send these emails out to people saying you're using our work. If you don't pay us five grand, we're going to sue you. And you know, some people ignore them. Some people tell them to go screw themselves. Some people pay, some people get sued, but yeah, we, we thought this guy was a crank and then all of a sudden, boom, you've been served. Yeah, literally uh, <laughs> you got served. Uh, and it, it was a hard time because, you know, um, I had to consult with a bankruptcy lawyer about my options and, you know, uh, it, it put a lot of things, uh, created a lot of, uh, uncertainty. I'm sure it was very stressful. Yeah. And so I, I basically stopped, you know, this was a site that was, that was building an audience that was building and I just lost all interest in it and it just sort of, uh, you know, sat for a few years making a couple hundred, you know, beer money, uh, uh, in long tail revenue and passive revenue until I finally just shut it down because it was starting to cost more to keep it up than to, than it was bringing in. Well, there's more stifled innovation then. Yep. Well, that's pretty much an hour there. So I guess we probably ought to wrap up. How about projects and books that you guys are doing? Greg, do you want to start? Do you have any uh, interesting books you're reading or projects you're doing? Uh, basically, uh, everything I'm doing is uh, getting up to speed on my new job at Amazon. Uh, I've been with Amazon for a while. I just moved to a new role. Uh, but uh, what's really exciting me is that in August, I get to go to Pi Academy which is a workshop uh, put on by the Raspberry Pi Foundation, and I will become a Raspberry Pi certified educator. Oh, cool. Nice. Those are fun. fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right, Gary? Uh, Not too much going on. Now we're we're getting into summer now, so got lots of travel planned this year, and uh, it's trying to, like, not – start a new app because, <laughs> uh, you know, with all the travel, uh, that'll kind of interrupt it and everything like that. Um, and of course, keep a track of all the exciting news from Apple with iOS 12 and Mac OS Mojave and, um, all of that, which affects, you know, Mac most and probably updating a lot of my courses here at the end of the summer for some of that. So, yeah. Kevin. Uh, in about a month, I'm going to be going to Kansas Fest, which is an Apple II conference that I go to every year. Uh, it's a it's a week uh, where basically people uh, spend all week playing and programming and goofing around with this this old computer. Uh, and so I'm kind of starting to prepare for that, and I've been typing in a program. Remember when you used to type in programs from computer magazines? <laughs> yes. It was like the way to get a program was you get a magazine and it would be like listings of programs and you have to like type them in perfectly. Well, and, and then you have to look for the typos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what stage I'm in now. So um, there's, there's a particular computer game that was published in, in creative computing magazine in 1982. And I want to do something with it at Kansas fest. And, I basically have to type it in. It it is not online. Uh, it, it's the the pages are scanned, and you can go to the Internet Archive and see the pages. But nobody has typed this in and you know, put it on GitHub, for instance. So uh, I used a combination of typing and OCR to get to to get it from from scans to uh, my Apple II emulator, and now it's there, and I am now currently trying to find the typos and they're not the normal kind of typos. Now they're OCR typos where fives look like S's and ones look like O's. And, and uh, so I, basically I've been playing with my Apple II emulator and trying to make this program work in preparation for Kansas Fest. Is this in basic? Yes. Apple software. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Fun stuff. <laughs> well, I am uh, reading a, a new book that um, was actually recommended by Leo. He's not here this week, but um, he sent me this book called How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds by Alan Jacobs. And it is fascinating. Really well written. It's easy to read. Uh, it kind of uh, talks about 
other books in this field and, and, you know, the big lessons from those books. So it's kind of an overall look on basically how to think. And it's really, really interesting. I'm sure I'm going to be talking about it in my own podcast uh, in an upcoming episode once I get through it. So very, very fun stuff. Anything else, guys? I think that's it. Oh, that's it for me. All right. Well, a quick note to listeners. When you tweet something nice about TEH, we screen cap it and post it on the TEH homepage. So be sure to tag us at the TEH podcast so we see it. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh27. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye. 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 Bye.